Welcome to Critical Window, a podcast from the Alliance for Excellent Education that explores the rapid changes happening in the body and the brain during adolescence and what these changes mean for educators, policymakers, and communities. Hello, everyone. This is Critical Window, the Alliance for Excellent Education's podcast about the science of adolescent learning. I'm Robin Harper. And I'm Hans Herman. Thank you, our first listeners, for joining us. Throughout this series, we'll explore research on how middle and high school students learn and what this means for policy and practice at the district and school levels. This podcast was inspired by all for eds Science of Adolescent Learning Initiative, which uses research from neuroscience, the cognitive sciences, psychology, and the social sciences, all areas that make up the science of learning, to transform the way we design our schools and inform how we view the process of learning. In this first episode, All Fred President Governor Bob Wise will interview Dr. Sarah Jane Blakemore about her new book, Inventing Ourselves, The Secret Life of the Teenage Brain. Following this week's episode, Robin and I will continue to interview world-class researchers on various areas in the science of adolescent learning. To learn more about All for Ed's science of adolescent learning work, visit allfored.org sal. Again, thank you for joining us on Critical Window. And now, here's Governor Wise. Welcome. My name is Bob Wise, and I'm president here at the Alliance for Excellent Education. Thank you for joining us today as I get the chance to talk with Professor Sarah Jane Blakemore about her new book, Inventing Ourselves, The Secret Life of the Teenage Brain. Our conversation comes at an opportune moment. Our new report, Synapses, Students, and Synergies, Applying the Science of Adolescent Learning to Policy and Practice, points out the major opportunities that exist in the next few years to ensure that critical education decisions are driven by science and urges new ways that we can work together to maximize impact. Because improving high schools for all students, especially the historically underserved, has always been All for Ed's prime mission. And focusing on the science of adolescent learning and how it affects secondary learners is a natural part of our work. Professor Sarah Jane Blakemore is Professor of Cognitive Neuroscience at the University College in London, where she is Deputy Director of the Institute of Cognitive Neuroscience and leader of the Developmental Cognitive Neuroscience Group. Professor Blakemore has a deep interest in the links between neuroscience and education, and her group's research focuses on the development of social cognition and decision-making in the adolescent brain. Her most recent book, released in May, is called Inventing Ourselves, The Secret Life of the Teenage Brain, and the copy that we have here at All for Ed is in high demand. And let me just also observe, wherever you are in the spectrum of working with adolescents, whether you're a parent, a teacher, an educator, a policymaker, in many ways a layperson, I recommend this book because it's written in a way that all of us can understand and take valuable lessons from. So, Thank you for being here again, Dr. Blakemore, coming to us via Skype from London. And let's get right into questions about your new book. You open your book with a chapter, Adolescence Isn't an Aberration. And in that chapter, you state that adolescence is a unique, is a unique stage of human development with a three-pronged argument. Could you explain a bit more how the concept of adolescence has evolved over time and why you consider it to be a distinct critical stage of development? Yeah, so the word adolescence was first used to describe this age group 
um, the sort of 10 to 25 year age group um, about 120 years ago. And some people have argued that adolescence is uh, a recent invention um, that, that, you know, and it doesn't really exist as a biological period of development. But actually, there's really good reason to think of adolescence as a unique period of biological and psychological and social development. First of all, um, you see it across species. So it's not just human adolescence where you see increases in uh, risk-taking and impulsivity and changes in social behavior. You can see those adolescent typical behaviors in other species, like in mice and rats. You also see those behaviors across culture. So even where cultures have very different societal expectations of this age group, you nevertheless see similarities in uh, behaviors of this age group. Again, you see increased risk-taking and uh, increased sensation-seeking in adolescence across very different cultures. And of course, you see it across history. You look at historical descriptions of adolescence going back thousands of years to Aristotle and Socrates. They were described in a very similar way we describe them today, in these kind of using stereotypes about making bad decisions and being lazy, lots of negative stereotypes that curiously we still apply today to this age group. So you, in your book, you reference Ron Dahl's paradox of adolescence and the theory that there's a developmental mismatch in the adolescent brain. Can you elaborate a bit on the evidence from your own and others' research that backs the developmental mismatch theory and how it relates to this idea of a paradox? The mismatch theory is the idea that different systems in the brain develop at different rates. You have the uh, limbic system, which is responsible for emotion and giving you a kind of rewarding positive feelings out of things like risk taking, that develops earlier than the prefrontal cortex, which is right at the front of your brain. Uh, and that the prefrontal cortex is involved in decision making and planning and inhibiting risk taking. And that undergoes very protracted development right throughout adolescence and even into the 20s and early 30s. So the idea is that the brain in adolescence is already uh, able to process emotion and the, the reward that we get out of risk taking, but it's not yet fully mature and able to inhibit risk-taking because that relies on the prefrontal cortex, which is still in development. Now, the, the actual evidence for this is quite mixed. There's some evidence to suggest that regions of the brain involved in reward processing and risk-taking are hyperactive in adolescence, whereas the prefrontal cortex uh, isn't. And um, there is some evidence that um, these regions do develop at different rates. But actually, I think the overall conclusion I would I would uh, take from this literature is that there are huge individual differences and not all adolescents develop in the same way. So for some, that might be true and they might be risk takers and for others, uh, they might not. And actually, the individual differences are just as important to pay attention to as the average changes that are going on in adolescence. So it's out in, in your writings what I've seen, I believe, is so there are different stages of this development, the, the physical processes occurring, as well as indi other individual differences. What does this mean for the educator? I think educators themselves know all about individual differences. They work with adolescents every day of their lives, and they know there's no such thing as an average adolescent. There's no such thing as an average teenager. Every teenager is different, and that's absolutely what we're finding 
in the neuroscience and the psychological research that although you can look at averages, it's probably more meaningful to think about differences between individuals within adolescence. Um, and, and that might have yeah, translational and real world implications into different teaching strategies uh, for different different types of adolescents, but we're nowhere near near there yet. We're nowhere near really understanding what underlies the individual differences. Is it genetics, or is it the environment that different children grow up in? Like, for example, their cultural environment, or their socioeconomic group, or even things like their peer relationships, or their nutrition levels, their exercise levels. All of these things can contribute, and probably do contribute, to brain development. Uh, at an individual level, but we're, we're only just starting to look at those questions. Would you mind uh, expanding some on that? Because in your book, you mentioned near the end of it, that the relationship between brain development and the environment, things like culture and technology, is, is still not well understood. So as an organization that, such as ours that focuses on historically underserved students, such as low-income students, students of color, uh, students with different learning needs, these students often disproportionately deal with challenges at home, in their community, in their society. So what do we know about adolescents facing external environmental challenges, how this affects their development? Well, uh, in terms of their brain development, we don't know very much at all, but there is some indication that those, um, those differences in, in environment do have an association with different uh, development of the brain. So for example, there's some research by Elizabeth Sowell at USC and her colleagues that socioeconomic status is associated with different um, developmental trajectories of the brain in adolescence. Um, but that's, you know, th there's some very high profile papers published, but only in the last two or three years. So that's a question that now many more people are starting to ask. Um, and we don't have the answers yet, but we will do. For example, the, um, the new adolescent brain and cognitive development study, the ABCD study, which is a huge study of 10,000 children aged currently aged 9 to 10 who are going to be tracked and uh, tested every year for the next 10 years in terms of uh, brain data, psychological tasks, mental health uh, um, questionnaires, um, things like um, socioeconomic group uh, um, screen time usage and mental health outcomes like substance abuse. Um, that study, it's only just begun, but that study will tell us a huge amount about these really, really important questions. So you are clearly a proponent of using research to inform educational practice and policy. You also warn throughout your book of the persistence of what I call, or you call neuro myths inconsistency in research findings and sensationalism of new, neuros, new neuroscience findings by the news media and individuals. So for an organization such as ours, which is involved in not only understanding the research, but more importantly, translating and brokering it into implementation, what are the implications for this? And, um, and what can we do uh, to commit ourselves to supporting the application of science of adolescent learning to education policy but to make sure that research is integrated, interpreted properly, and applied appropriately? It's such an important question. Um, I'm a neuroscientist, and I'm also really interested in the implications from neuroscience to education. I mean, education is all about changing children's brains. That's what education does. So, of course, the brain is absolutely fundamental to education, to teaching and learning. But then the question is, pragmatically, 
are there any findings from neuroscience that really have translational, uh, real-world implications to the classroom? Um, and I think the temptation is to be uh, seduced, as I talk about in my book, this kind of seductive allure of neuroscience. Um, and products take advantage of that and sell themselves to school based on the idea that they improve the children's brains and children's learning. But as I say in my book, I just thought it was so important to emphasize that actually you have to be really careful. Um, you have to be really careful that the whatever product you're looking at or book you're reading uh, has actually gone through the proper um, uh, scientific studies and systematic, uh, for example, randomized control trials if it's an intervention. So often, at least in my country, and I'm sure it's the same in yours, that's not the case. And um, educational products that are selling themselves, that are marketing themselves based on something about the brain, optimizing brain development, have no basis in, in evidence. And I think that's really a problem. It's going to, I think it, particularly as we look, this is a critical period in the United States for policy reasons for implementing certain decisions uh, as 13,000 school districts now have to develop plans for how they transform their lowest performing schools. So to implement the best science of adolescent learning at the same time being responsive to the concerns you just raised, it's going to be a big, uh, uh, a big issue for us, I think. It's a really big challenge because these products, you know, they, they, a lot of them want to work <laughs> and they market themselves very cleverly. But it's probably worth trying to get hold of um, a, a, a psychologist or an educational psychologist or a neuroscientist to, to check them out if, if you're interested in a product. Um, I mean, the, 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 best, the, the best problem with those kinds of products is the school is just wasting money on them. It's just a waste of money and you know, they, they may or may not work, but probably not for the reasons they say. But the, there are more problematic outcomes, which is that, you know, how do we know they're not doing harm um, if they haven't been through proper systematic studies and randomized controlled trials? We have no information. We have no data about how they're affecting brain development. So you referenced Dr. Jay Geed's National Institute of Health's brain scanning study several times, and we're fortunate at All for Ed here to be working with Dr. Geed. From reading your book, it sounds like studies like his are vital, and this discussion are vital for advancing our understanding of brain development. If that's the case, what are the future types of studies that governments and philanthropy should be looking to fund that will continue to build these long-standing foundations, long-lasting foundations for neuroscience to inform education? Jay Geed is really the pioneer of this area. He was the first person who um, pioneered studying the adolescent, the developing brain using MRI scanning. Um, his was the first paper published in this area. Um, he is one of the critical players, neuroscientists in this, in this area still. Um, and he has so much value. <laughs> I'm glad you're working with him. And so he's you know, spent many decades thinking about all these questions and all these issues. Um, yeah, so working with someone like him is is going, is going to be really helpful. Um, in terms of the future, I mean, I mentioned previously the ABCD project, the Adolescent Brain and Cognitive Development Project. That is a project that's uh, funded by NIH. It's based in the US and it has many dozens of principal investigators, that is scientists from different institutions all around the US. And they're coming together with a very large amount of funding to, um, to track uh, brain development, behavioral development, mental health outcomes like substance abuse and depression, 
um, as well as a whole load of other biological and psychological measures in uh, a very large group, 10,000 9 to 10 year olds, um, as they get older and as they go through adolescence over the next 10 years. That study will be really crucial in telling us answers actually to a lot of critical questions like what are the um, precursors of substance abuse? Like what are the risk factors? Um, why do some children develop mental illnesses and not others? What's happening before the development of those, the onset of those mental health problems, in, both in terms of their brain and their um, uh, psychological development, but also what are the risk factors in their environment? Um, this will have uh, implications for mental health, of course, but also for education and, and other questions like screen time. They will be measuring uh, the amount of screen time and technology use um, children uh, take part in each day and have and looking at the outcomes of that because that's a worry that a lot of people have but actually we don't really have very much data on it at all at the moment. So you're in the UK, we're in the US, a number of other researchers and uh, practitioners across the world are very interested in the science of adolescent learning. We're part of a number of conversations about how to do a better job using international research in the science of learning to inform educational and educational practice and policy. Uh, as an international researcher yourself, and, and uh, you reference a large community of researchers throughout your book, my question is how should U.S. policymakers and practitioners, and for that matter, policymakers and practitioners in all countries, uh, support and learn from the international research community? Where is it we all have our unique cultures and, and systems of education, but how is it that we can also learn from each other? Well, fortunately, at the moment, uh, science is an international endeavor, and there's a huge amount of movement across borders to do science well. So people from all around the world move countries to train to do to either be students or to do PhDs or to do postdoctoral training in other countries and other cultures. That is so critical to uh, to science. We really need to be to, to have those kinds of international uh, collaborations. Also, even if you're not moving physically, you can collaborate like I am now on Skype. You know, it's easier now to collaborate with people in different countries. And that's so fundamental to the science we do, these international collaborations. Um, most PIs, like most uh, most um, uh, scientists like me, will have many different international collaborations. Um, and it's a really interesting question, these cultural differences, because they do exist even within, say, Western cultures. You know, education systems are different, culture is different, children grow up in different environments. Um, and how those affect brain development and education is, is a question that people are starting to become really interested in, but we don't really know that much about yet. Um, one, one question that I'm often asked is, well, what about um, brain development in cultures that are very different, sort of non-Westernized cultures of, say, lower middle-income countries? And um, the answer is we don't know because all, we know a huge amount about brain development, how the brain develops in adolescence but only in adolescence from the USA and some countries in Europe. Very few other countries have tracked brain development in their own adolescents who are growing up in their countries. So we, we just don't have that comparison data, and, that, and that's really important. You talk about how adolescence is a stage of heightened creativity, and give an example, and you gave an example of how you seek the opinion of the youngest members of your lab when going through a creative process. In education, are we missing out on a key opportunity to lift up adolescent creativity 
And if so, how should schools think about unleashing the creativity of their students in schoolwork and in other what would be today non-conventional ways? Yeah, so th there is some evidence from Evelina Krohn in the Netherlands, her lab, showed that um, in, some not, um, in some creativity tasks, adolescents do better than adults. And that kind of makes sense. That's an empirical study, an experimental study, but it kind of makes sense uh, anecdotally. If you think about adolescence, this is a time where young people are very passionate and they have new ideas and they test new things out and um, they, you know, they, they're, they're interested in kind of novelty and <laughs> doing new things. Um, does school take advantage of that? I'm not sure it really does, at least not, not the school system that I know of. And that's not, that's not teachers' fault. I mean, teachers are so uh, busy and so squeezed in terms of the amount of um, academic information they need to teach. They, they have to. They're obliged to teach their children and that children get, uh, students get tested on each year, that it's very hard to, to fit in anything around that, like promoting real creativity, for example. Um, but wouldn't it be nice if, that, if there was more of that and if the education system allowed that more? This also seems to suggest that we need to be looking at schools of teacher preparation, uh, because if we're asking teachers to be able to, to both have the knowledge and develop the pedagogy, to meet each student where he or she is in their development, uh, that's going to, I think, require a, uh, some change at least in conventional preparation. Any observations on that? Or how we prepare our teachers for this emerging science? Yeah, I mean, I think the teachers that I work with here in the UK are largely really interested to know about the science of the, of the teenage brain. And it's currently not something that is taught uh, in teacher training. I mean, some teacher training programs cover it a little bit, but it doesn't, it's not um, systematically covered across the country in, in teacher training. Um, but it does seem to be relevant. You know, the, the way the brain develops and the way it, it, um, it, it might be particularly uh, plastic and amenable to change, amenable to learning, to creativity, seems really relevant to education. And I think that, you know, teachers have a right to know about that. It's their students that they're teaching. Uh, it's their brains who are changing. Um, and they, and, and I, I, the teachers I work with in this area um, say that they find it kind of empowering to learn about um, what's going on in the brains of the teenagers they teach. So while we're on the subject of plasticity, I'd like to ask how you feel about the plasticity of political brains uh, in the sense of as educators need to be aware of this, so it is that policymakers, whether in the, in the United States, the local school board member who's making decisions that affect 2,000 students in a school district all the way up to a member of Congress that's passing the next major piece of federal legislation, how is it that we can communicate effectively science of adolescent learning with them? Well, there, there is a lot of evidence out there um, about how the brain changes in adolescence and the, the science of adolescence. Um, and a lot of the people who work in this area are really um, keen and enthusiastic about working with policymakers because the evidence does probably have very um, tangible policy implications, both in terms of education, but also mental health and public health. 
But the desire to know about that evidence has to be there in the first place. The policymakers need, you know, have to want to have an evidence base and want to know about the evidence. And that, that's sometimes tricky to, to persuade them that this evidence is really relevant to the questions they're thinking about. But once you, men, once you establish that kind of relationship with policy, like there is a lot of interest um, in, 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 in the UK uh, from policy in, in, in neuroscience evidence, um, then that relationship can be really fruitful and you can get a lot out of. And, and it's also bi-directional. It's not just about the neuroscientists telling the policymakers what to do. Of course not. It's about a bi-directional conversation where the policymakers are um, asking about um, questions they're interested in and maybe even you know, shaping the direction of the science or giving us new interpretations of our science. It really helps us as well develop, develop scientific questions that have tangible uh, implications for policy. Well, that, that helps a lot. We just issued a report at the Alliance that calls on a triangle that the communications not only between researcher and practitioner, but also include that policymaker as well, and that there be an ongoing interaction. Question on um, how, me you, in your book, you write about how medicine has years of controlled testing before a new drug or intervention is implemented. And you say you agree with the argument that education should require similar testing of new methods. However, when I think about medical environments, they seem to have a higher level of standardization and control compared to classrooms. And so thoughts on there's less room for variability by the nature and design. How, given the uh, large amount of vari variation in classrooms, teachers, and so on, is it reasonable to point to random controlled trials as a gold standard if they don't necessarily replicate the en environment that adolescents are learning in? I think it's a really good point, and I totally understand the difficulties of doing that kind of randomized controlled trials in education and the difference with medicine. But if you think about one branch of medicine, which is clinical psychology or psychiatry, where you're having uh, interventions like cognitive behavioral therapy or behavioral activation, those kinds of talking therapies where a, um, a clinician is, talk, is working with a, um, a client who has some kind of mental health problem might be phobias or depression or uh, or any any number of mental health problems those talking therapies undergo um, very large amounts of systematic study and randomized control trials it's thought of as really important before investing in them as a government um, to to make sure they actually are have efficacy and have uh, positive results compared with active controls and so there's not that much you know that, that's another example of where it's messy and it's not you can't really control the environment so much there's individual personalities involved and yet somehow they manage it so I think it's not an impossible task but I understand that it's complicated and also it doesn't have the history the kind of culture surrounding randomized control trials so it would have to it would it would require a whole culture shift um, to do that. But I mean, uh, the reason why I think it's important is because when you're educating children, you're changing their brains. Um, and in medicine, if you take anything, any drug or any cognitive therapy or whatever that changes your brain, you wouldn't do that without it having gone through many years of randomized control trial. And you, let me just read a quick excerpt from your book. Uh, education policy tends to emphasize the importance of early childhood intervention. You even quote the U.S. National Scientific Council on the Developing Child from 2014, which said, brain plasticity and the ability to change behavior or learning decreases over time. 
You then go on to write that this argument is partly based on findings from economics that interventions early in life are more worthwhile than later interventions in terms of the money saved. However, this emphasis on early interventions is at odds with the finding that the findings that the human brain continues to develop throughout childhood and early and adolescence and into early adulthood. So a question, are we suggesting that the way we often think about interventions is wrong? Would you, could you elaborate further on how you think education leaders, I might add policymakers, might think about decisions about interventions? Yeah, so we, for many years there's been this emphasis in, um, in, in education policy on an economics that the, the first three years or maybe the first five years is, is the most critical to intervene and that, that that's really based on economic arguments that that has the most added value later on in life but the problem with that is that you can't you can't just intervene in the first three years of life you can't just try to help children from very um, uh, uh, um, say low socioeconomic groups um, in the first three years of life and then and then stop and stop the intervention and expect them to be fine from then on the brain and children develop in this very protracted way right throughout childhood and adolescence. So the intervention needs to continue and be sustained after the first few years of life. Um, we shouldn't neglect adolescence as a period of potential and opportunity for intervention. Um, if a child slips through the net early on in life and they don't have that extra intervention, that doesn't mean that it's too late to intervene in adolescence. It's not. The, um, the evidence from brain research suggests that, in fact, the brain continues to develop very substantially during adolescence and provides a important window of opportunity for intervention, rehabilitation, teaching and learning. I think that's an important point. As a colleague of mine once said, we can't just love them until they're three. Uh, no. In that what I take from your book and other research, but particularly this book, which states it so well, is adolescence is a, is a, a particular moment of development, just as early childhood is, and indeed there's a, a continuum of development that occurs throughout our life. Is that a fair premise? Exactly. I think the idea um, which used to be quite prevalent, which is now known to be wrong, is that if you don't, you know, you have to intervene early, and if you miss that window, it's just too late. You're, it's not worth the intervention later on. I think that's a wrong assumption. So my guest has been uh, Professor Sarah Jane Blakemore. Uh, her book, again, in, Inventing Ourselves, uh, The Secret Life of the Teenage Brain. I urge everyone to read it. And Dr. Blakemore, thank you very, very much for this uh, very illuminating conversation. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Critical Window, the Alliance for Excellent Education's podcast on how the research from the science of adolescent learning can inform middle and high school design and the work of school leaders. Tell your colleagues, friends, and families about Critical Window, and please subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher to make sure you catch future episodes. This podcast was produced by Aharon Charnov, Hans Herman, and Robin Harper. To learn more about the science of adolescent learning, visit all4ed.org slash SAL.